You're listening to Inside Content, the TV industry podcast. This show is brought to you by Three Vision, a global TV industry consultancy specializing in content acquisition, strategy, research, and business development. Each episode, we give you VIP access to the views and experiences of senior TV executives and discuss the latest TV industry trends and insights. On this episode, I speak with John McVeigh from PACT on the impact of the potential Channel 4 privatisation, the independent production sector and PACT's mission and services. The big impact that Channel 4 is sold will be on the fact that whoever buys it will set up in-house production. They will immediately look at the schedule and cancel all the shows over time, which do not give them a commercial return on investment. Because Channel 4 doesn't have to worry about that if a show doesn't do that, because that's its job, because it's not there to pay shareholders. Welcome to this edition of Inside Content. Today, we're very fortunate to have John McVeigh, CEO of the UK Screen Trade Association, PACT. As I said, John is the chief executive of PACT, which is the UK's I guess, leading trade association for film, TV, animation, children's and digital production companies. He's been involved in programme making as a producer, been a consultant, a trainer for many years, but actually has been CEO for PAC for 20 years, which is a remarkable period of change for someone to be in the same role, which as a role must have changed phenomenally over those years. John, I, I could talk more about your skills and your areas of focus, but but perhaps to start with, just because we do get quite a mixed audience, these podcasts, you could maybe just tell us maybe a little bit about what PAC's mission is. Yeah, yeah well, it's very simple. We're here to make our members money or save them money, but that involves many, many moving parts. We do all the union agreements, the collective agreements. We negotiate terms of trade with the broadcasters. We have internationalized our industry through trade missions, connections to international buyers, to the extent where 50% of our sector's revenues now comes from non-UK commissions or sales. And that's a diversification from 20 years ago, where basically every indie, I, I used to say, well, you're not really independent, you're wholly dependent, because unless you got a commission from one of the major UK broadcasters, you didn't work, your business didn't grow and you had to find another career. That's not the case now. We're a highly diversified, entrepreneurial, very successful commercial sector with global reach and global buyers. And that's been a good thing. It's it's not been to everyone's taste to get to that point, but it's meant that what was effectively a cottage industry or where people had to queue up in a soup kitchen in order to get a commission and say, thank you very much for inviting me to the Christmas party. We are now a proper entrepreneurial sector that can go out and take on the best in the world and that's that's a good thing for everyone including our domestic broadcasters yeah that's great in fact i think i'll probably come to it later and it's i digress slightly but what i find your points about the global kind of market for them is obviously kind of key and I, i know the uk is always right up there in terms of one of the biggest exporters after the us but what i found fascinating the other day was the global streamers in the us basically admitting to the fact that some of their success is now going to be dependent on what happens in the rest of the world, which is such a sort of flip from what used to be, because it used to be they dominated the world because of the strength and size of the US market that put them in such a strong position. But now some of them are now going to be dependent on how well these new services work overseas. Yeah, and I, yeah, but that's, I mean, that's good for us, but it's also good for the localization for producers generally. I mean, you look at Squid Games and look at how that, what that's done for Korea. I think it's a good thing. Because having 
in the past, the studio has made stuff for America and they flog it to the rest of us normally in very expensive bundles. Now with the streamers, everyone's got to be a lot more nuanced, a lot more understanding of what audiences really get excited by and engaged in. And yeah, I think Squid Games are an amazing example of that, but so is The Crown. So is uh, Midsummer Murders, so is Line of Duty, so are many other things which are uniquely, besides Squid Games, uniquely British, but are finding big audiences around the globe. And that's, you know, we have a, the global television industry is the single biggest entertainment market on the planet. And that includes streamers and, and everything else in that. Much, much bigger than games, much, much bigger than film. And the UK is successful in that. And for such a tiny country to be, basically be, you know, one of the second largest audiovisual economies, that's, I think that's a major achievement and a credit to our creativity, ingenuity and commercial acumen. Yeah, I think so. And I think I'm not sure I have any kind of analytical evidence on this, but anecdotally I've heard from, from many that kind of over the last few years the sort of fact that services and i don't just mean the netflixes of the world here but squid games is a great example but the fact that services have found a way because maybe because they're not so stuck to a rigid linear schedule that on nine o'clock on a sunday night they have to do a certain thing that they can take more risks and they can just be a bit more diverse with their programming so perhaps the kind of the short run uk drama that only had a limited number of clients many years ago now has many more clients because of the nature of the market yeah, I mean, I mean, it's interesting with um, Squid Game because um, it, it's become a global smash. I thought I was chatting to someone the other day who was saying, but actually a lot of people in Korea hadn't actually watched it. They only started watching it because it became a, a global smash. So the numbers in Korea for Netflix went up even more. But that's that's the nature of hits. That's, that's the business we're in. Yeah, it is fascinating, Squid Game. And I do wish that the world could actually have full insight into exactly what happened on Netflix to drive that. And, and so we could all know all the insights. But nonetheless, just the simple reality that a company like that can impact kind of the global zeitgeist for content in only 11 days like, is, is remarkable. And of course, I mean, sport has always done that. You know, the World Cup, the Olympics, I mean, sport has always been a global experience. But now we're seeing entertainment doing that in a way that few would have conceived of, you know, when I first started at PAC 20 years ago. So just going back maybe to PAC and your role there, I know that you contribute to, I was going to say, many of the government's kind of policy forums and creative industry, probably all of them, I imagine. But I hope you don't mind this, but I uncovered a great quote uh, when I was reading the other day that has been attributed to you, and you can you can deny it if you want to, but you were quoted as saying to Tim Davey, just remember, we'll always be there to kick your shins and we'll never go away. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> good, good, good. Now, if I, if I was a producer, you're exactly the sort of person I'd want on my side. Well, that's exactly what Pact is. We're on the side of the producer. Yeah, yeah. and I'm not, a, I'm not a Chelsea fan, but I know that kind of most of the Chelsea fans would probably think the same thing about Dennis Wise throughout the 90s. Kind of, they were quite happy he, he was doing all that really hard work. But the parallel probably doesn't work, work very well. But As an Arsenal fan, we're probably a bit like Arsenal. We never go away. <laughs> so day-to-day, maybe if you just give us a feel for kind of activities. Obviously, there's a lot of policy work, particularly when certain things are going on. But, but if you could just give us a feel for sort of what, what you're up to. As I said at the beginning, but it sort of breaks down into a number of clear areas. One is business affairs, talent agreements, copyright issues, collective licenses. So we provide a whole range of services, advice and input, and we're very active 
on those agendas, both domestically and internationally, because we are in an international market. So we need to make sure our members are aware of how they protect their copyright or where there are issues we can raise that with government. So we, we provide all that, but that can also be advice on you have a problem with someone you need to make redundant and you don't want to fall foul of UK employment legislation. We give advice on that. So, and all of that is bundled into members' fees. So anyone can get in touch with us, phone up, and we're basically, as I often say, we're the AA service for producers. <laughs> when they break down, have a problem, we try and get them back on the road and help them through whatever the issue is. The next vertical would be on all of our international work, which has been a growing activity. And we started to engage in that about 12 to 13 years ago. When we saw that there was going to be very little growth in the domestic market, we wanted to get our talented producers out to the international market so they could either make sales or win commissions. And the balance has actually moved from sales of finished programs to more original production. That's actually the biggest part of non-UK revenues now. And that's been great. So small companies who may have made some shows for domestic broadcasters, some of them have gone on to become massive suppliers to American networks. That's been a very good opportunity. So that's been a big bit of our investment. But the pandemic, ironically, or as a sort of serendipity, the pandemic's massively accelerated our reach into international buyers because we've been able to utilize uh, Zoom technology and other technology to get to people when they've just got up for breakfast in LA. They don't have to get on a plane. They don't have to leave their wife and kids. They can do a session for us. We set up one-to-one pitching sessions, and this technology has actually facilitated more international activity during the pandemic than people would imagine. So we're now seeing more opportunities and more commissions coming as a consequence of the pandemic, because it's much easier to get a more senior person in a major US network on this sort of technology than asking them to get on a plane and fly somewhere. Hopefully we do get back to that at some point, because everyone likes having a chat in the bar or you know doing something social. But this has been a a real boon and really helped a lot of our members through difficult times by being able to win work from other buyers uh, from overseas. The third leg of our main legs of the stool, if you want, is all our policy and regulatory work. And that's to make sure we that whatever government of any hue is doing, that they do something that's good for us and or stop something that might be bad for us. <laughs> Clearly, Channel 4 being a big issue right now about the government's proposed privatisation. I'm very active on that as a campaign to make sure government completely understands what the impact of that is. Channel 4's model is optimum. But we work on European legislation. I work across all the creative industries. I'm on the Creative Industries Council. I helped to get the first sector deal done, which was the formal recognition by our UK government that the creative industries were a key part of the UK economy. And that's now baked in. I worked a lot on setting up the restart scheme last year, which was the government indemnity scheme to replace production insurance for covid So we we get active anywhere where we see an opportunity to try and make things better or stop something horrible, we get involved. We respond to every consultation. Our review is always there. There is always someone shouldn't be kicked by us somewhere. And that's what we need to do for our members. They pay us. They don't have to be a member. We're not a closed shop. They pay us voluntarily their profits to for us to provide the services and to give a voice to the issues that matter to them in their day-to-day business. We also spend a lot of time trying to look ahead 
what's coming, what are the opportunities, and then bring those to the membership. So we run a, an accelerator program, which has a lot of people from across the value chain, bringing opportunities to members, bringing insight, bringing expertise, so that our members can actually you know, use all that to construct their own business plan and their own strategy for what they want to do in their lives and business. So we try and do, we'll look downstream quite a bit, say, oh, have you seen how they finance this? Or have you seen how they're doing that? And bring that to the membership because they're just too busy, <laughs> you know, making things and surviving like all small businesses to sort of do that themselves. And I think that's a big piece of the added value work that we do for members every single day. There's always something on, on our website or, uh, you know, we do a lot of work around diversity and inclusion. So we've developed a lot of workshops to help members navigate that as more and more buyers want to see more diverse programming and more diverse ideas. We're also active on the sustainability and climate change agenda to help members navigate all that. So whatever helps their business is really what drives us every day. Um, and it is a really, when people say, oh, so how do you inspire the staff? What's your mission statement? And it's really, it is really what I said at the beginning. If you go home at the end of the day from working with PACT and you've made a member some money or you've saved a member some money, you're doing your job because you're paying them back for their investment in us. You mentioned two things then that I'd certainly like to discuss more with you. But what, what I find <laughs> maybe interesting is in the last sort of 20 years, and I don't pick that because of your tenure there, but the last 20 years, which coincide with, well, remarkable change. But I guess there's been loads of change to TV ever since. Well, ever since another standout Scottishman invented the TV, I guess, in, <laughs> in 1926. But in the last 20 years, it's sort of on the one end of it, you had the 2003 Communication Act. And on the other end of it, you sort of had COVID and the production restart scheme. So two big bookends to what you've been doing really at the moment. And I guess to quote the RTS, kind of the Communication Act in 2003 resulted in the UK having the world's most creative and commercially successful independent production sector, which is a nice, I think, simple way of putting it. But it's essentially, it established the codes for how the each PSB should commission programmes, the terms of trade came out of it. And previously... The broadcast owned all the rights to the shows that they commissioned and after it sort of independent production companies actually held on to some of the ip and it lent to loads of investment loads of growth kind of companies well consolidating also launching and and looking back at the the debate then a little bit of reading yesterday just to remind myself and it was really interesting kind of reading the debate because reading it in the context of what's going on now especially with content owners launching their own services and 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 so on it's and also producers your producers kind of looking more to the streamers for commissions and as you say having a lot of success in, in internationally and in effect kind of we've got a world where there are new commissioners kind of new rights requirements new windowing kind of paradigms or orders and new business models and when you talk about a project, a production project, so use a generalised term, kind of in terms of what comes out of it and in terms of who gets what rights, if any, the share of revenues, the rights terms, kind of all of those elements and pieces, are, um, plus they get in the window to broadcast it, kind of are changing. And there's lots more ways that they can form. There's Because the, there's so many more elements, like in particular things like the utilisation of contents, the concept of a box set with right and all of those other things and and just the different practices of people like Netflix mean that 
producers have got a lot more things to keep on top of. And as you say, they may well have the skill set, but they don't necessarily have the time to keep on top of over those things. But would you agree that kind of there's many more strategic things that they have to think about when it comes to projects than before? Yeah, yeah. I mean, if we go back to pre the terms of trade, when I first started at PACT and I commissioned some analysis of the sector, it was a private report on how viable the sector was. And it wasn't, it was dying. Margins were down to 2%. You didn't owe any IP, you got no back end. I remember a famous, very well-known producer for a very famous show sent me a copy of the check he'd got from BBC Worldwide for his entire net share from a major show, it was five pound. It wasn't sustainable. And there was a huge debate in PACT when I first started about, did we want to push for a bigger quota? So did we want more of the soup kitchen or did we want to go for IP? And thankfully the council at the time agreed that IP was the way to go. And we assembled a very great task force of leading producers led by Eileen Gallagher people like Alex Graham, David Frank, Andrew Zane, and that was the group that thought to change it. Yes, the world is more complicated, but thank God, because in the old world, the only complication I had was, will I make a production fee? Will I be able to hold on to a margin? Because I had nothing else to worry about. <clears throat> and of course, the world opening up in terms of merchandising, secondary rights, book deals, all of that is in play now. None of that was in play before. That was all taken away from us. So yes, there's more to think about, but isn't that a good thing? That's a good thing for entrepreneurs. That's a good thing to have options, to have choices, to have other ways to think, how can we build a brand? I mean, could we turn this into a theater show? Could we make a movie out of it? Most of those things were excluded before. Now that's a good thing. Or I've got a great idea called Squid Game. Am I going to take it to the BBC where I own rights? Or am I going to take it to a big global streamer, which will pay me a large margin to buy out those rights? That's now a strategic decision for producers and they can play the market. They can choose what is the right thing to do. You know, if you're looking to sell your business and you want to increase your EBITDA, you might say, I'm going to go for a couple of big margin shows because that's going to put my multiple up on my EBITDA. But you still want to own IP and you still want to have a strategy that means that I mean, we are the only country outside America who does this. Nearly every other independent sector, apart from the French, but their system doesn't work. You know, where we are like the American studios, we own IP. British producers own IP, like Warners, like Universal, like Disney. And that's a good thing. You know, long argued is that's been good for the UK. It's brought huge investment and it's brought more opportunities and it's brought more growth and revenues. Uh, and that's that's a good thing. Yeah. The other day by a producer distributor, the key for them is kind of having that mixed portfolio in those things that you talked about, just about hedging your bets. But it's about, so obviously it's about managing cash flows, about other things as well. But you, you'd kind of agree with that, would you? Yeah, I mean, we were a service sector before. Now we're proper business people. Of course, that meant when the world changed, quite a lot of those people who had quite a nice life being a service sector couldn't adapt. And, you know, there were many people who left the industry because the new world didn't work for them. But now, uh, you know, we still attract many new startups. We've got a membership of 750. We have a quite a high churn rate in that sector, but every year it's replaced by new people going, this is a good business. This is something I want to tell stories in. This is where my creativity can give me a reward. And that, I think that's really healthy. There's a couple of things definitely like to us, but I think probably the 
pressing one, and I know probably one you get asked about a lot today is it's the reoccurring, but back again, subject of Channel 4 and, the, and its privatisation. I mean, it goes without saying that as a broadcaster, it has a, I think, I think kind of globally unique status almost. There's some that are similar-ish, but not quite. And it's as an independent broadcaster providing very different and, well, culturally sort of different and alternative programming than other PSBs, publicly owned, commercially funded, um, doesn't make a profit, doesn't answer to shareholders, all of those things that will all will change if... if yeah, they'll disappear completely. Yeah, so, yeah. Government successfully privatises it, which it's talked about in the past before. And I find it hard... I think it's fair for me to say it's indisputable that it's vitally important to the independent production sector that, that Channel 4 remains doing somewhat what it does now. And I don't see how you can kind of argue with that. But clearly, kind of, you, you would have a lot of concerns for the sector if it, if it were to be privatised. Yeah, well, I mean, I think Channel 4 was created by the Conservatives to engender an entrepreneurial production sector to tackle the vertically integrated in-house production from ITV and the BBC. And I think we've shown, given that Indies account for about 50-plus share of the total market, I think we've shown we'd, we've done that, we've delivered on that. Channel 4's remit, which is quite vague and quite subjective, if government thinks they're not doing the right thing, government can actually say something about that and maybe look to readdress where they see there might be failings in the remit. So that's more about the cultural and creative. And, you know, I think that's something government is perfectly able to do. On the, the big impact if Channel 4 is sold will be on the fact that whoever buys it will set up in-house production. They will immediately look at the schedule and cancel all the shows over time, which do not give them a commercial return on investment. Because Channel 4 doesn't have to worry about that if a show doesn't do that because that's its job, because it's not there to pay shareholders. So the biggest impact on the indie sector, and we've quantified this in some work we've done for government, is that small indies who maybe make a two-parter or three-parter, that slot will be cancelled by the new owners because they will want to free up airtime investment and IP for their own in-house production much like ITV did when the Indies became much more competitive, in-house production didn't succeed. So ITV went and bought a lot of very successful Indies in order to win more of its own market because they weren't generating ideas that were fit for purpose. So maybe the new owners might buy some Indies to do that or they'll set up their own house production. But the consequence of that, and we don't know what the scale of that might be, whether it will be open-ended, whether it will be compliant with the quota so they could go up to 75% um, or it will be less if government maybe imposes a restriction. But the impact on that on the independent sector will mean that some people, some people's businesses will fail or they will not grow as fast or they just won't happen because Channel 4 in its remit is one of the few broadcasters where if you and I sat down at Starbucks tomorrow and came up with a brilliant idea, but we maybe don't have a lot of experience of television, we still might get commissioned by Channel 4. That's not the case with the BBC. You have to have made a programme for the BBC in order to even be, be able to pitch to the BBC. So Channel 4 is not only an actual economic benefit to companies, it's an, it's an aspirational pool for new businesses as well. And all of that would disappear. We've quantified the cost directly on what would be the impact on the in-house production on the schedule. And over 10 years, it's close to £4 billion of a transfer of value from independent producers to whoever the new shareholder is. 
And that is really detrimental. That means people will not grow. It means we will not get the same diversity of suppliers across the UK and including culturally. And we think that that's a detriment and that's a very daft idea. And coming from a conservative government, which is meant to be supporting entrepreneurship, global Britain, levelling up, us taking on the world, which we do, it seems completely counter to those conservative values. I mean, a lot of my members may not vote conservative, but they are free market capitalists. We are British businesses. And the idea that some American buyer of Channel 4, where there'll be a direct transfer of value from British business to American shareholders, I find deeply disturbing. And I think it's impossible to understand why the government thinks that's a good idea. I'm not thankful for it at all, but I'm grateful that you share my uh, inability to reconcile it as well. I find myself going around in circles, um, especially when they talk about the potential value to the Treasury from the sale as well, which is negligible, really. Barely a rounding error on the national deck. Yeah, <laughs> yeah and, and the argument that in order to help them to compete against global streamers, but who's going to buy them? <laughs> and like, is it going to be a US company? So, yeah, I, I, I find... I mean, look, I mean, the, I mean, the thing is, I mean, leaving aside whatever price they may or may not get, depending on where, how that goes, Channel 4 is a highly valuable asset. It's got a very good demographic. It's got a good branding. It's got a good EPG slot. It's got a good international reputation. It's also got a great ad sales house. <laughs> You know, there are a number of assets in Channel 4 which will be attractive, and I'm sure there'll be a number of bidders if it goes ahead who will be very pleased if they win that race to get those assets. The problem is, is what are the consequences of that asset transfer to whoever may buy it? They will be detrimental to the British economy. They'll be detrimental to the British broadcasting system, and they'll be really impactful on small businesses. And that's why, you know, we're not some union. We're not here crying about you know our members deserve 15 pound an hour we represent entrepreneurs who take the risk who invest who will win or die it's very darwinian television you know you're only as good as your last show uh, but if that show will never be made because the opportunity is now transferred to an american owner then that's really bad news for british business yeah yeah i tell you i think it's really easy to forget sort of how good Channel 4 are at some things <laughs> and how, how much of a trailblazer they were at some things. Some of their on-demand initiatives, their early digital initiatives, they, they were way ahead of others and still remain ahead of, of some of the others, I would say, as well. But Yeah, I mean, I mean, if you look at what they've done recently, I mean, this is why the sort of government's analysis, which has never been published, is hard to interrogate because we don't really know why they've come up with this thesis that somehow they, they will need huge amounts of capital quite quickly. So let's flog them before they're a busty flush. We, we don't know, um, but, you know, all four is doing really well. The Channel 4 is on stream to have its best ever year. Where's the analysis that says it's not doing a good job commercially? It may, it may, you know, the government may have concerns about remit and other things, but in terms of Channel 4 being a viable commercial broadcaster, doing a very sweet job, hitting a very key demographic, a high-value demographic in the UK and driving innovation and opportunity, you know, what's not to like? <laughs> so, Absolutely. Well, look, probably time, John. Thank you so much for your time. Um, it's been a pleasure catching up and uh, I know how busy you are. And um, yeah, well, I, I look forward to catching up with you in the future. Great. Thanks, Jack. OK, well, good luck with everything and thanks for the opportunity. Thanks for listening to this episode of Inside Content from 3Vision. You can always reach out to us at 3vision.tv if you want to learn more. Or 
If you're a business with ambition in the content world, our consultancy services can help. With decades of combined experience, we know the ins and outs of the industry like nobody else. Catch us next time on Inside Content.